On today's Exploring History podcast, we'll discuss our most precious freedom in this country, the freedom of religion. Welcome to Exploring History with Ray Notgrass, a production of Notgrass History. Religious faith is vitally important in our country's history. The desire for the freedom of religious expression was the motivation for the founding of several of the English colonies. Founding Father John Adams said about the new Constitution, Our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. When the Constitution was submitted to the states for ratification, Several of the state ratifying conventions insisted upon the addition of a bill or list of personal rights that would be guaranteed in the Constitution. James Madison collected these suggestions and submitted them as a list of amendments for Congress to consider. The First Amendment addressed freedom of speech and freedom of religion. Freedom of religion came first. The First Amendment says, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. This clause of the First Amendment addresses two central concerns. First, the founders wanted to avoid the problems that had arisen in Europe when countries had established or official churches. The founders knew about the religious wars that erupted when Catholics and Protestants, and sometimes Protestants and other Protestants, fought each other because of their religious differences. Second, the Founders wanted to guarantee that Americans would be free to exercise their religion as they saw fit. They understood the importance of religious faith and wanted no obstacles erected to hinder it. Congress has had chaplains since the days of the Continental Congress. The motto of our country is, In God We Trust. These provisions are wise foundation stones for our country. They have enabled peace, avoided divisions, and allowed a spiritual strength for the United States. But they also highlight a delicate balance that our country seeks to maintain. We don't want an established religion, but we also want representatives of government, as well as everyday citizens, to have the freedom of religious expression. Two questions that arise again and again are, what constitutes an establishment of religion, and what, if any, are proper limits to the freedom of religious expression? One phrase that I'd like to dispense with right off is the idea of a wall of separation between church and state. That phrase is not in the Constitution and is the creation of one man in a personal letter. In 1801, the Danbury, Connecticut Baptist Association wrote a letter to the new president, Thomas Jefferson. The Baptists in Danbury believed that they enjoyed only limited rights in the state because the Congregationalist Church was the established church in Connecticut. Several states had established churches in the early years of the country. These Baptists asked for Jefferson's endorsement of their idea that they should be free to worship God in any way they chose without interference from the state, which, in the case of Connecticut, gave its endorsement to another group. 
In his reply, Jefferson said that the First Amendment had erected a wall of separation between church and state. In Jefferson's thinking, the wall was to protect the church from interference by the state. This phrase has been quoted in Supreme Court opinions as authoritative, even though it is not in the Constitution. Many people see the phrase as meaning that the state must not condone or participate in any religious expression whatsoever. Advocates of that position see the wall as protecting the state from any intrusion by religion. As I see it, there is no wall of separation between church and state. There is instead a carefully maintained balance between no establishment of religion on the one hand and the free expression of religion even by the government on the other hand. How do we decide whether an action maintains that balance or not? We have come to see that the U.S. Supreme Court determines that balance. In the cases that it hears, the court decides whether a particular practice is in accordance with the Constitution. We might not agree with a particular decision of the Supreme Court, but we have to wonder who else might be such an arbiter if the court did not do it. Let's look at a few cases that demonstrate how the court has tried to maintain the delicate balance between not establishing a religion while allowing the free exercise of religion. In the late 1940s, non-faculty religious teachers in Champaign, Illinois, were allowed to use available public school classrooms to train students who voluntarily chose to take part in religious training. The Supreme Court struck down that practice in 1948. The court held that the use of public facilities for this religious training was too much of an endorsement of religion by the government. However, four years later, the court upheld a program in New York City public schools that allowed students to go off campus to receive religious training during school hours. Writing for the majority in the latter case, Associate Justice William O. Douglas, one of the most liberal justices in the court's history, said, We are a religious people whose institutions presuppose a supreme being. We guarantee the freedom to worship as one chooses. We make room for as wide a variety of beliefs and creeds as the spiritual needs of man deem necessary. We sponsor an attitude on the part of government that shows no partiality to any one group and that lets each flourish according to the zeal of its adherents and the appeal of its dogma. When the state encourages religious instruction or cooperates with religious authorities by adjusting the schedule of public events to sectarian needs, it follows the best of our traditions, for it then respects the religious nature of our people and accommodates the public service to their spiritual needs. To hold that it may not would be to find in the Constitution a requirement that the government show a callous indifference to religious groups. That would be preferring those who believe in no religion over those who do believe. He went on to say, Government may not thrust any sect on any person. It may not make a religious observance compulsory. It may not coerce anyone to attend church, to observe a religious holiday, 
or to take religious instruction, but it can close its doors or suspend its operations as to those who want to repair to their religious sanctuary for worship or instruction. No more than that is undertaken here. So, government may not allow religious instruction in schools during school hours, but it may allow religious instruction off-campus during school hours. The court has said in other cases that government may not give funds directly to a religious school, but it can give assistance to students who are attending a religious school. Two more subjects that have aroused considerable discussion among the public and have led to the court making decisions are displays of the Ten Commandments and nativity displays on public property. The court has determined that displaying the Ten Commandments as part of a larger display of our legal heritage is constitutional, but a display of the Ten Commandments by themselves is not. Chief Justice William Rehnquist wrote in one case, Of course the Ten Commandments are religious. They were so viewed at their inception and so remain. The monument, on public property that was the subject of the lawsuit, therefore has religious significance. According to Judeo-Christian belief, the Ten Commandments were given to Moses by God on Mount Sinai. But Moses was a lawgiver as well as a religious leader, and the Ten Commandments have an undeniable historical meaning. Simply having religious content or promoting a message consistent with a religious doctrine does not run afoul of the Establishment Clause. In the early 1960s, the court ruled that mandatory prayer and Bible readings in public schools are unconstitutional. These two decisions are the ones that many people cite when they say that prayer and the Bible have been taken out of public schools. More recently, the court has also said that prayer at a public high school graduation was unconstitutional since it had the effect of coercing students to engage in a religious activity. However, the court rejected a challenge to the phrase under God in the Pledge of Allegiance. The court rejected the challenge, brought on the basis of its recitation in a public school, on technical grounds because the person bringing the suit did not have legal standing to do so and was not harmed by the practice. However, in a concurring opinion, supporting the majority decision, Chief Justice Rehnquist addressed the issue of the phrase itself. He wrote, I do not believe that the phrase under God in the pledge converts its recital into a religious exercise of the sort described in the decision regarding the high school graduation prayer. Instead, it is a declaration of belief in allegiance and loyalty to the United States flag and the republic that it represents. The phrase, under God, is in no sense a prayer nor an endorsement of any religion, but a simple recognition of the fact noted in a House of Representatives resolution, from the time of our earliest history, our peoples and our institutions have reflected the traditional concept that our nation was founded on the fundamental belief in God. Reciting the pledge or listening to others recite it is a patriotic exercise, not a religious one. Participants promise fidelity to our flag and our nation, not to any particular God, faith, or church. The recital, in a patriotic ceremony pledging allegiance to the flag and to the nation, 
of the descriptive phrase under God cannot possibly lead to the establishment of a religion or anything like it. But let's remember that the Establishment Clause is only one part of the First Amendment's statement about religion. The Amendment also protects the free exercise of one's religion, and several court cases have addressed this issue. For instance, the Affordable Care Act, often called Obamacare, included a provision that required businesses to provide insurance coverage that made available certain forms of what the law called reproductive services. Based on their religious conviction, David and Barbara Green and the company they founded, Hobby Lobby, objected to providing this coverage. In 2014, the court ruled that the law created an undue religious burden on the Greens and the company, and that citizens cannot be compelled to finance programs that go against their religious beliefs. Hobby Lobby is what is called a closely held corporation, meaning that only a few people own all the stock. In this case, only the Green family owns stock. The Greens argued that forming a closely held corporation did not take away their right to practice their religious beliefs, and the court agreed. In 2018, the Supreme Court ruled 7-2 in favor of Jack Phillips and his Masterpiece Cake Shop when he refused, because of his Christian convictions, to create a wedding cake for a gay couple. The court held that Phillips should not be made to create a product with a message that violated his personal beliefs, and that the Colorado Civil Rights Commission had acted unfairly against Phillips. Just this year, the court ruled in three relevant cases that dealt with freedom of religious expression as well as the issue of the establishment of religion. One case involved a practice by the city of Boston, Massachusetts, that allowed groups to fly a flag in front of City Hall if they were having a ceremony or gathering in the nearby plaza. The city had approved 50 flags for nearly 300 such gatherings and had never refused a request until a group wanted to fly a blue flag with a white cross on it as part of a ceremony, quote, to commemorate the civic and social contributions of the Christian community, unquote. A unanimous court said that flying the flag did not constitute government speech. Since other groups had been allowed to fly a flag, this group should be able to fly a flag, even with the Christian symbol on it. This is a pattern in the court's rulings. If other groups are permitted to engage in certain actions, such as reserving a meeting room in a state university building, a Christian group cannot be denied the same right, even though it is a religious group. The second case from this year involved a program in the state of Maine, which offered tuition to students who live in remote areas without access to public schools. The program allowed the use of the tuition at a private school, but the school had to be non-sectarian. A group of families filed suit, claiming that the non-sectarian restriction discriminated against their right of religious exercise. The court agreed in a 6-3 ruling. Finally, the court ruled in a case involving a high school football coach in Bremerton, Washington. Coach Joseph Kennedy began the practice of going to midfield after a game and quietly kneeling and praying. Eventually, players, students, and parents 
joined him. The school district ordered him to stop, and when he didn't, it fired him. Kennedy sued, and the court ruled six to three in his favor that the free exercise clause, as well as the free speech clause of the First Amendment, outweighed any concerns about the establishment of religion in Kennedy's actions. What I've tried to do in this podcast is outline the current interpretation of the First Amendment's Establishment Clause and Freedom of Exercise Clause based on rulings by the U.S. Supreme Court. We should be thankful for these provisions of the First Amendment, that we do not have a state church, and that we have the freedom of religious expression. The frustrating thing for many Christians is that the court has struck down several practices, such as prayer and Bible reading in school and public displays of the stable in Bethlehem and the Ten Commandments, that were once widely accepted in our society. These decisions by the court are a reflection of changes in our society as a whole, and we can pray that the Lord will soon turn the hearts of the people back to Him. Ultimately, though, We don't put our trust in the decisions of the Supreme Court, but in the higher judge before whom even those justices will one day stand. In the Old Testament book of Habakkuk, the third chapter is a prayer by the prophet Habakkuk in response to what the Lord had taught him about trusting in him despite whatever difficult situations develop. Habakkuk says, Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines. Though the olive crop fails, and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. Perhaps we can add to that list, though the election doesn't go my way, and the Supreme Court rules against public religious practices that I believe in, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. I'm Ray Notgrass. Thanks for exploring history with me today. This has been Exploring History with Ray Notgrass, a production of Notgrass History. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast in your favorite podcast app, and please leave a rating and review so that we can reach more people with our episodes. If you want to learn about new homeschool resources and opportunities from Notgrass History, you can sign up for our email newsletter at exploringhistorypodcast.com. This program was produced by me, Titus Anderson. Thanks for listening.